Hi, my name is Mark and welcome to The Active Listener, where we aim to listen, not just hear. We firmly believe that everyone has an interesting story to tell, if given the space to do so. So listen in to what our guests have to say. You may learn something. Welcome. Tell us a bit about yourself. So my name is Tineke Bernard. I am in my late 30s. Um, I'm a mum of two girls, I'm a Londoner by heart, but live in the Hertfordshire countryside and work in marketing. So one of the things we talk about on Hitin is life purpose, lessons we've learned and that sort of thing. So could you tell me a bit about how you see yourself, what drives you? Yeah, and we're going to go straight in with the big questions, aren't we, Mark? Oh, so absolutely. I love it. Um, what drives me? How do I see myself? So I think the way I see myself, um, I don't know if it's an age thing, an experience thing, but I definitely feel in the last few years, I've really gotten to know myself. And and by know myself, I mean, know what it is that I stand for, know what's important to me, you know, what my values are, um, what my driving forces are. Um and a lot of that is community. It's belonging. It's, you know, it's not just, it's, it's family, but not just family. It's not the family that maybe you're born into. It's also the family that you make. Um, it's knowing that every day you're around, you can, you know, start again, start afresh, do better, help people. Um, and I'm always very conscious about how I'm helping others, if there's more I can do, and to teach my kids the importance of that. You know, are they have they helped anyone? Did they stand up for anyone today? You know, it's like we're a um, household of mini activists, and I think that's something I'm really proud of. And I want to, I kind of say, I'm raising warriors, and um, and I like, you know, I've got my two Xena warrior princesses by my side. Is you know that idea of you know raising um, children to, you know, to look after others, not just themselves. Wow, that that's really powerful. I, I like the household of mini activists. Yeah. So, how did you come up with that? Because it sounds like to me that you haven't always had this as your kind of vision. What brought you to the point of having this way of looking at things? I think it might have been the fact that we moved out of London, which might sound like a you know strange catalyst, but. You know, as, as I said, I am a Londoner and, you know, London is very fast. You you walk with purpose. Everything's about, you know, there's not enough hours in the day. And, you know, whether it be because of the stranger danger, you know, the dangers around you or just the fact that you need to work all hours of the day to make enough money to survive in London. But you're always going. And when I moved to the countryside, it was I live in a really small village and there's such a sense of community here. Um, not to say that I wasn't like looking out for people and stuff before I moved to London, before I moved out of London, but I think that's when it really gave me a chance to slow down and, you know, think about what I want to teach my, then I had one daughter at the time, teach my one daughter um, and actually have a chance to live with purpose and live with intention. I guess you have no choice when, you know, the shop starts at five o'clock and there's nowhere to go. So you've got a lot more time to think about you know, think about things and, yeah, just be intentional about what it is you do. Being intentional about the things you do um, and also the fact that where you're living has had a, a real impact upon the way you see things, not simply in terms of your day by day, I'm working here, I'm travelling there, but 
almost in a in much more philosophical way. Yeah, for sure. I think you know where I live now. One of the favourite pastimes, even pre-COVID, where you were forced to do your one hour's walk a day. People go for walks there. People drive in from nearby towns and cities to go walking, which I always find amusing. I, you know, I'm out walking my dog or just trying to keep the kids busy, and there are people in their full walking gear coming out here for fresh air. And I did um, find I adopted that lifestyle as well, just going for walks in the fields or walking around the perimeter of the village and it just gives you a chance to slow down and be in your thoughts and actually spend time, you know, thinking, you know, not just doing, but actually being in the moment and thinking. And, you know, it's a luxury we don't always have time to do. You know, it's a luxury to, you know, to actually give an hour over to just your thoughts and think, you know, be in the present, but also start planning for the future. Outside of London, you still consider yourself to be a Londoner through and through. Would that be right? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can be living out here in 20 years time. And I think I still see myself as a Londoner. It's, it's ingrained in my DNA now. It's my formative years. That's where I was. That's where I feel at home. Mm-hmm. I feel when I step off the train into London, I feel it's, it's a physical reaction. I feel myself mm. just relax. It's like I'm I'm amongst my people, and maybe it will change. Maybe I'll end up being so disconnected because it's been so long that that isn't the reaction I have anymore. But I hope that will never go. Yeah, I get that in terms of my identity and that sense of belonging and so on. But it's interesting that having come out of places you say where your people are. And then come out to somewhere which sounds quite different, the hustle and bustle of London, that that place that you've moved to has had such an impact as well. Do those things go, do they do they balance one another out or are they opposing one another? Ooh, I, that's really interesting. And as you say, I'm, I'm sitting there looking at it as a magnetic, um, it feels like a magnet that I'm stuck in between and it's repelling in different ways. And I don't, yeah, I think they probably more oppose than... Um, complement each other They're, it's very different sides of me and I'm just probably I'm probably as comfortable now living out here and also get a sigh of relief sometimes when I'm coming out of London if it's been a particularly busy strenuous day when I see the fields and the sheep and the cows and things again and I also do have that oh, I'm at home because my home you know the brick and mortar of my home does feel like my safe haven now just as much as London does and, and there are many negative factors to, you know, my life in the countryside, just as there were negative factors that made me leave London. So it is, you know, I have to be balanced and say that, you know, as much as I am a London, I love London. There are obviously um, parts of living out here that I love, you know, such as house prices, <laughs> for one, for sure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's not kid ourselves. But, um, yeah, it is a constant struggle, especially, you know, I'm a middle-aged black woman with you know black children who's living in a very you know 99% white village in a you know probably 90% white borough so you know there are challenges to that there's you know even on the cultural I want to go and buy some plantain level you know there are challenges to that that you know I just never had to even think about living in London so yeah it's not without its problems but it is home you mentioned earlier about making family. Unpack that a little bit, both in terms of that statement and then in the context of where you are at the moment. Yeah, so 
I guess I come from a really large family. So my mum and dad are both one of like many, many siblings. So, you know, more cousins than you can count and more cousins than you have a chance to ever, you know, get particularly close to it at any one time because there's so many of them. And so it's, it was very much always, you know, these are your family and it didn't matter whether you liked them or not, whether, um, you, you know, you kind of bonded with them or not, they were family and you would have these family functions and all the rest of it. You know, luckily I did get on with the majority of them, so it wasn't terrible, but, you know, it was kind of ascribed to you, this is your family, you're on this, you know, huge weddings, huge parties, um, but you didn't really have any connection to them. They were just family and that was how I was brought up. And I think it took many years it was after university where I first had a glimpse of you know family doesn't have to be blood family can be those who go out of their way to you know make you happy or want to spend time with you and that you want to spend time with and um you know who you have a genuine connection with and that was really important to me I think I was living in China at the time and it was a massive Christmas party we had and you know looking around the table I didn't know anyone there longer than six months but it was probably the best Christmas I'd had and um, you know it was just beautiful because we were in a room full of people who all wanted to be there for each other um, and that goes into now so now you know I have like my extended family I have um, for instance a CB mentoring lot so that's a, um, a charity that we founded and I see all of those, the trustees and founding members as family because we are you know we're all connected we all have joint purpose um, and we all like spending time with each other, which is really important to me. Um, and the same with, you know, members of my community here. There are some here that I would trust with my children, you know, that maybe I wouldn't maybe my own actual family. So, yeah, family doesn't have to be those that you're born into. There's a lot going on there, a lot of avenues I think we could go down. be interesting to know a little bit about life story there sounds like there's been some interesting things going on because you, you mentioned about living and working in China as well so give us a kind of an overview of day zero to where you are now okay so Tineke day zero was born in Nigeria but I can say I'm not Nigerian I am Nigerian it's just this interesting you know fam, you know families that move around a bit so my parents my mum is Dominican my dad is Nigerian and they both came over to England, to London in particular, in their early teens, so like 11, 12. And their parents had come before them. So, you know, Windrush generation, my um, my maternal grandparents came in the 60s. And my mum, I guess, was feeling maybe a bit Afrocentric um, when she was pregnant with me. And her and my dad went over to Nigeria for a little, little bit. But... Um, was too pregnant to come back basically before she had me so I was born over there so I'm a first generation and third generation all at the same time which is quite interesting interesting that your parents got together Afro-Caribbean and Africans didn't really intermarry so much did they no no I think they it's one of those interesting things as I said they're both one of many so my dad and came over with he, he was one of the youngest younger ones he went to secondary school here they came over with his older brothers and um so there was maybe like five or six of them and they all went to a house party and one of my mum's friends was also you know was dating like um one of my uncles so they you know they both went as a group and they just used to hang out and I think maybe at that time it was just um yeah it's sort of changing 
yeah, it was just changing. So it's very much, you know, the Nelson Mandela stuff and, you know, very much. So they as like Caribbean women were very Afrocentric and it was quite cool to go mm-hmm. out and hang around with a group mm-hmm. of African blokes. So mm-hmm. I think that's what kind of happened there. So, you know, hence why I have a Nigerian name, even though mm-hmm. I had a Dominican passport, I was born to a Dominican mother. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's, you know, all of those kind of things. She, they got over the Afrocentricity. My brother is called Ashley. Like, woo. <laughs> they lost two years later they completely forgot all about it but um you know at, at the time it's like oh Tineke okay let's go for it but um yeah they it's all so what was quite interesting is the whole blackness is something that I kind of I, I always knew I was black obviously but to me you were just black because I was coming mm. from a mixed household mm. but it's only you know in, in your teenage years and people are like narrowing it down to what black are you and then mm. you're like, oh, you know, there's this Caribbean African thing. And there's, you know, even mm. between the islands, there's, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. it gets very complicated. It's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, but you're Dominique in your small island. I'm like, what? Can I not just be black? I was black until I was 14. What, what's going on? You know, and suddenly, you know, what island you're from yeah. and what. And I was like, it's interesting how we divide ourselves. So I'm just black, and, but I'm at the same time trying to teach the girls, you know, all of them. So the Dominican, Nigerian, Jamaican, this of them so that they know if they want to know, but at the same time, like, girls, you know, you can just be black, and that's okay. We don't need to worry too much about all the different, you know, flags if you don't want to. There's a whole series of podcasts to be discussed <laughs> For sure. Um, so, yeah, everyone was Londoners, but I was born elsewhere. And grew up in London, grew up in um, North London for most of my life. Um, ended up going to university just around the corner in Hertfordshire. So, you know, very close by. After uni, as as you said, I moved to China. Um, basically, I hadn't figured out what I wanted to do, you know, in terms of graduates and schemes and things. I just, my mind wasn't there. I wasn't thinking about it at the time. And um, was offered a chance to do um, a TEFL course, so teaching English as a foreign language, um, and which... So I did a CELTA course at the university and it ended up that they were short of teachers. So there were actually a couple of teachers short to do their teacher swap with one of their partner institutions in northern China. And of course, since I had no plans and because I'm quite impulsive, I was like, yeah, sure, I'll go. If you need an extra teacher, I'll go. So whereas the other teachers who they kind of swapped were actual teachers who'd been teaching for decades, there was little old me who had just graduated with her teaching certificate <laughs> I think three weeks before we left um, and I went out there and taught in a military shipbuilding university for a year which was amazing and came back over to the UK because my boyfriend who was out in the UK still um, had an accident and broke his back so I came back to see him and ended up getting pregnant with my first daughter and um, he wasn't very keen on us to, you know, raise her in China. So I stayed here um, and, yeah, had her, worked in various jobs. I've definitely, I would say I'm a serial job hopper. I mean, there's someone that maybe the younger ones understand and kind of aspire to. And maybe the older generation see me as a cautionary tale, you know, because I've been everything from a teacher to a magazine editor to... Um, you know, working in banking, you name that, probably done it. Um, but, you know, did, had a few different jobs. As I said, banking magazine editor, worked for 
the BMJ, which is an awesome institution, watched some startups, and um, nice mixed bag, and um, was pregnant with my, had another daughter um, five years ago nearly, um, up here in Hertfordshire. And even that, the difference in experience between raising, you know, the first child in London and the second one in Hertfordshire is just incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, now I'm working in marketing for a startup that's just been bought up by a very big institution. And yeah, life is starting to maybe slot into place, starting to feel, you know, feel lived in, which I guess might be due to my age, 37 next month. So yeah, that's me. To me, there's a sense of adventure there terms of what you're doing trying lots of different things and it's interesting what you made reference to in terms of older and younger generation in the way that Mm. that could be perceived there are those maybe at junior or secondary school they know Mm. what they want to do did you ever have a feeling for where you wanted to go what you wanted to do or has it been a continuous kind of process of it Uh, it's so interesting I think when I was really young I knew exactly what I wanted to do but Mm -hmm. and I say this and I kind of laugh because it's not to it's not to say that I've seen this job anywhere or that's what this job actually did but I always wanted to be a music lawyer and I had a very very specific idea as to what a music lawyer's life would be I would be rich I would be filthy rich I would travel the world I would have like um I'd basically be best friends of these really cool artists who would invite me yeah work really hard to be invited to all these parties and I'd go there and you know sign amazing deals for them and they would love me for it and I'd you know look amazing as I worked and and I'd go home to my 2.4 children and everything would be hunky-dory now I don't know at what age um I realised that wasn't a thing. Like, maybe it is a thing, but that's not the life of a music lawyer. You're more likely to be stuck in an office reading through, you know, terms mm. and agreements and stuff. But um, needless to say, before it got to uni, I chose not to study law. Um, and then I think ever then I felt lost. I think there was always a struggle between me wanting to do something very creative and me feeling forced, even if not, you know, if it wasn't said, but kind of forced to do something that was more professional, that was more... Um, traditional for you know a black Afro-Caribbean family so there was always this kind of battle so I chose mm-hmm. business studies because that was you know it was vague enough that you could go many directions with it but mm-hmm. it would be seen as you know maybe um, traditional enough for my family so I went for business studies even though I think I've always preferred more creative aspects mm-hmm. um, and then yeah I think my whole kind of adult career I've not I've never you know been I want to be a doctor or I want to be whatever I've just liked the idea of the job so I'm more interested even now I don't care what my title is it's about how does that job make me feel do I feel like I've accomplished something am I helping anyone have I just helped rich people become richer or have I actually done something that you know I can feel proud of at the end of the day um and that's always been more important to me Mm. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, that that whole thing about what route you go down dependent upon money. You know, do you mm-hmm. go down a sort of a, a safe route where you know you're going to be guaranteed a, a relatively decent income, or you're going to go down the route which could be a bit more iffy financially, yeah. but pursue your dreams? Exactly, and and it's a thing. You know, maybe again from coming from immigrant parents. I understand that what's more important to them and why they, you know, kind of maybe push to the more traditional 
um, routes. It's because it's a guarantee, you know, because they love their kids. It's a guaranteed income. Mm. It's safety, it's security. It's, you know, maybe opportunities they wouldn't have had themselves. And um, so they want you to do something that's going to allow you to be safe. Even if it is maybe at the expense of your happiness, because to them, you know, being safe financially will equal happiness. Whereas, you know, maybe we have a generation where that's not all, you know, we're not just happy because we've got, you know, money in the bank. We want to actually feel fulfilled as well. So it's this interesting dynamic between generations. And, you know, by all means, there are things that, you know, my kids talk about that I totally don't get. So I can understand more where my parents would have been coming from if I'm there going, oh, I want to be a poet. And they're like, what? A poet? What? <laughs> Making what money? You know, mm. so I understand, you know, why they did what they did. Or, you know, just gently nudging me in different di- directions because I'd probably be the same. But I'm trying, I'm consciously trying not to do that when, you know, my kids show me things that I just don't get. Just to explain or unpack a little bit as to how your parents feel about the way you're going now, your journey? I don't know if I've actually ever asked them that way. I think they are proud of me. Mm. I think, you know, they they probably worry about me quite a lot because, you know, I do, I feel things. I do feel things that if, you know, if I'm not happy where I am, I will, you know, I'll leave where I am. I will look for something more fulfilling, you know, in terms of jobs and things. So um, I think sometimes they worry for me because I haven't had maybe the structure and you know longevity in roles um in the same way that they may have but at the same time I think they're proud what's really funny is maybe over the last few years um so I'm a blogger I've been blogging for 11 12 years now and um, never particularly you know not professionally it's not my umbrella matter. it's something I enjoy doing it's a way to you know have a hobby some people walk or play football or, you know five aside I, I like to write on the internet sometimes but um what's funny is um whenever you know I get some sort of recognition and I show it to them and like oh we always knew you were good at writing we always said you should be a writer so you've always been really creative and you're sitting there kind of laughing to yourself going hold on a minute I'm sure I you know I feel like my whole teenage years were spent being steered towards more professional you know more traditional um mm-hmm. roots and now as an adult um, they're singing my praises as to how you know how creative I've always been and I've always had a way with words and you know um which is really interesting so I think they're proud I think um they're more comfortable that I'm comfortable in my skin I guess and how do you feel if you look back at where you were where you are now in terms of fulfilling your dreams no you're not the uh, music lawyer that you were <laughs> aiming to be, but in in terms of like your creative uses, your creative skills. Mm. Um, the last few years, I've been really keen on you know I use um, vision boards. I try to visualise where I want to be and have you know goals for the month, year, how many years ahead. And I'm still very much about um, how things make me feel, you know, as opposed to having particular accolades. I don't feel that I've found that sweet spot in terms of um, creative kind of avenues, but I'm happy that, you know, I've got a really lovely community, say on Instagram and, you know, we chat. I've not kind of adopted them, you know, the whole doing reels and, you know, sharing a particular viewpoint to have this huge audience. And, you know, I haven't done that and I don't think I want to do that, but I still want to find out, you know, I want to have my own little space 
Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be on the internet, but I, I still feel that um, I haven't quite found that sweet spot where, um, you know, it just feels right where your heart sings, but I'm really enjoying the process. And I'm really enjoying that now I don't feel that that's even a problem if I don't have that sweet spot. I think um, we, we're in a society now where we're kind of under pressure that really show people what you're great at. So, you know, if you're into painting, um, but you're not really good at painting, you know, and you maybe won't share that because, you know, even though it's your, it's your hobby and it makes you really happy, you won't share those paintings because they're not Picasso level. But mm-hmm. the joy is in the painting, not in the, you know, finished product mm-hmm. half the time. So for me, the joy is in being creative and trying new things out, not necessarily being the best at it. So um, I'm more comfortable now in just showing that process, you know, sharing a photo that's not perfect, sharing a blog post that isn't, you know, going to win an award, and that's okay. Whereas maybe before there was so much pressure that if, I, if I'm not going to be the best at it, there's no point sharing. And then you'd get like six months of writer's block because, you know, you are so um, frozen by fear that, you know, there are people that are better than me out there, but you've got to be brave enough to suck at something first. Pretty powerful statement, actually. You know, I, I work with some very high achievers mm. and, you know, I've seen a coaching space. They, they can say what they want. They can bear how they're feeling. And it's not uncommon to be talking to someone who outside of it, you think, well, they've got it all together. You know, they've got yeah. X, Y, Z qualifications, they have a well-paid job and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. But there's that nagging doubt. There's often this thing about perfectionism. And how do you get to that point where good is good enough? Because, you know, perfectionism could be a really harsh taskmaster. It it really can. And I don't I don't recall what made it click and make me realise that sometimes good is good enough. Because I think I'm my worst enemy and can put things off for ages if I'm not sure it's going to be perfect. But it might I don't know, it might have been actually um, quite recently when I was um, managing other people and I found that they weren't putting out the work or weren't showing me work um, and you're starting to worry, are they doing it? Are they okay? Do they need more support? And it was that, it was them being perfectionists and, you know, would rather leave me waiting two weeks for a task that I thought would be done in two days because they wanted to give it to me just perfect. Um, and I started seeing that actually I do that too. You know, I do that too, but in different areas of my life. So um, by seeing it in others and being able to, you know, be a bit introspective and realise how that then relates to your own life, it made me realise that the same way I'm telling these um, people who work for me to, you know, no, 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 just hand it in. I'd rather see it at 80% because you might find that your 80% was my 100 anyway, you've overachieved. Or I'd rather see it when it's at 80% and we can fix what needs fixing rather than you spend two weeks perfecting it only for me to find holes in it which is both you know it's really it can really be deflating for them if they've put their heart and soul into something and then you go yeah yeah I'm going to pick some holes in it now you know why don't we work on this together so I think it's that kind of attitude again okay put things out there you will only get better with time so let you and your audience work on it together let you know let it be a visual (laughs) and actually it's my probably my daughter even more than that my eldest she loves artwork and she won't show you half her artwork to you because she needs it perfect first. And I always say, I want to see the growth. I want to be able to see 
the not so perfect pieces of artwork so we have something to compare it to this time next year and this time in 10 years and if you don't put it out there no one gets to see that growth and that struggle with you it sounds like to me that uh you are on this journey of enlightenment if that's the right, right phrase Gosh, it you feels know. like it yeah 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 so how do you go about using kind of that knowledge in bringing up the girls i want to kind of like stop those kind of generational curses where you kind of left to learn for yourself and learn the hard way learn for yourself and do it and as many parents that come before me, I try and give them my life lessons so that they don't fall into those same traps. And of course, they, you know, take it with a pinch of salt and roll their eyes and, you know, like, why are you telling me this? But I really want them to learn, not just learn from my mistakes, but, you know, learn the aha moments too. Let me share those things that made life easier. Let me share that it doesn't matter what someone's opinion of you is or that, you know, it's fine to speak up in public spaces and not feel, you know, that you're under a spotlight and all those kind of things that maybe you get those that confidence with age. I want them to feel confident now. So, um, yeah, and it's, you know, walking the talk. If I feel something's important, I need to show them that. It's not good enough for me to tell them that. I need them to see me doing those things. So, you know, travel is very important to me. My oldest, um, you know, we'd we'd go away from times she was quite little, even if it was just up to Edinburgh or down to Cornwall or to Spain, you know, in local trips, but it was really important for me to show her that there's more to life than the bubble in which, you know, your neighbourhood is in. Um, and that's something that I was lucky enough that my parents taught me from a very young age, where I had friends who'd never left the borough, you know, as 18, 19 year olds, and it was mind boggling to me. So, you know, I'm trying to take the best bits um, of my life and show it to them as early as I can. Imagine yourself the the 15 year old tin, mm. and your parents said the things that you would now be saying to your yeah. children. How would you respond? Do you think you would take on what you're saying? It's hard to say. 15-year-old Tinica is extremely confident, maybe to the point of arrogance. And so she may not have listened. But I think at the same time, I may have been stopped in my trap just because that level of kind of honest dialogue maybe wasn't something I would have been used to. So I might have been very, that might have piqued my interest enough to really take it on board at that age. They're very much more of the do as I say, not as I do generation. Um you know, busy lives, both work full time. If they were chatting, it was most likely to remind me to do the dishes or have I done my homework or, you know, that kind of level parenting, you know, just, just a, the daily, everyday, you know, that we all get sucked into. So I think if they were to stop and kind of go, look, you know, I've learned that you can trade, you know, you can buy shares and stocks and it's a great way to save rather than just in your savings account. I'd be like, oh, okay, tell me more, you know, because you don't normally talk about these things. So I, I would like to think that I'd listen and I'd like to, but, you know, I'd be just as receptive as my kids are to me. But yes, arrogant tin is another beast. <laughs> so we're fast forward. After having lived such a, a long life, healthy life, 
how would you like to be remembered? What would you like to be remembered for? How would I like to be remembered? I hope I leave a legacy. And that's something that I'm toying with now because I'm not quite sure what that legacy would be. I think, for one, I'd be really proud that, and it's such a silly thing, Mark, but, you know, just something as simple as being able to give some financial stability. So I have... um, a life insurance policy and it's not something I'd ever thought of before but you know I, I don't know I feel very adult for having one but um you know I know that my kids are going to be very you know well off upon my death so I'd be very glad that I've left them that but I'd like to also leave them a financial legacy in my lifetime so mm-hmm. I'd hope to leave you know leave them with homes and businesses maybe charities even that they can be proud of and that they can pass on to their children so not just you know I want to create generational wealth not just one generation but a few generations worth um I want to be remembered on a more wider scale if I'm looking past just my children but um, I want to be remembered for being kind for always going that extra mile for being reliable um for speaking up for things you know if I see something wrong for being that person who spoke out about them um yeah and just been a lover of life is there anything else I think maybe it's the whole idea of um kind of self-worth and I think loads of especially women I find struggle with the idea that they're not good enough to do certain things and um, so they don't try because it's already it's, it's what others do whether it's oh it's you know people who are smarter than me do or people from a different social strategy whatever the reason we're very good at you know telling ourselves no before we even give it a go so um you know I never thought I'd be a trustee of a charity now I'm a trustee of two charities and um, on both occasions I was asked to do that it wasn't a case of you know me reaching out and filling the forms or goodness knows what I was asked to be a trustee on a charity and even then when it was kind of um broached to me it seemed a very scary possibility that like, oh I'm not I'm not adult enough I'm not responsible enough why would you want me you must have made a mistake and it's you know knowing that you are worthy of taking that space and you are worthy um if you know if someone asks you to do something they see something in you and mm-hmm. take it as a compliment and go for it even mm-hmm. if you don't see it yet you know be thankful that someone else is seeing it in you and don't brush them off don't be overly modest and you know, put yourself down, just say yes. And I think that, I don't know if it's age knocks, you know, down a confidence because it's the confidence a teenager would just say yes to these kind of things. But then as an adult, you start putting yourself down and saying no and not even reaching out for these opportunities. So the same goes for blogging or, you know, having social media presence. There's, it's not just for people of a certain age or a certain body type or a certain skin colour, you deserve to take up that space. Your voice is just as important as anyone else's voice. And, you know, it might not always seem that way. You know, you might take a while to find your tribe, but there's someone else who's going to listen to what you say and it's going to mean the world to them. And you've helped them purely by being there. Every time, you know, as I said, I've had my blog for 11 years or so, 11, 12 years now. And there are many occasions where I'm uh, I've not written in ages. I'm just gonna, you know, stop paying the um the hosting fees. I'm gonna shut it down. There's no point. And then I get 
it's an email to my inbox saying, you know, oh, it could be something silly. I tried the recipe that you were talking about, or I was just having to think about what you said about racism or, you know, whatever it is. And it reminds you that your words reach all the way around the world for one, but they reach people. And even if it makes a difference to one person, you know, you know, you make a difference and you matter. So never think you are too small. That would be my take home. Circumstances can knock the stuffing out of people yeah. that um, causes individuals to doubt. Um, I think also so many people have that kind of inward negative thing going on. It's just mm. some are better at hiding it than others. You know, exactly. um, it's, it's so easy to be looking at other people and think, wow, they've got it all together. That's so confident. And then not realise that that individual, whether you believe it or not, is actually looking at you and thinking, oh, wow, they've got it all together. Exactly. They're so confident. <laughs> exactly. We're all, we're all pulling up masks, aren't we? Even if we don't mean to. You know, we're all, we, as, you know, by nature, we compare each other. By nature, you know, we we think the best of everyone else and the worst of ourselves. So it's, it can be very interesting just, you know, when you take those conversations offline and, you, you know, talk to someone on a one-to-one level and you realise, oh my gosh, they don't have their, you know, their lives together in a way that I thought they did. Like, wow, we all struggle. We all have self-doubt. So yeah, it's very powerful to remember that. And, you know, it's that old age thing of, you know, um, picturing your audience naked when you're going on stage or whatever, kind of going, you know what? we are all human and we all have our thoughts and our flaws and you know no one is better than the other just just take up space and go for it takes real bravery to let that marks down but Mm. there's real power in that as well do you have a default mask that you put on and if so how do you go about dealing with a mask i think my default mask is to be overly friendly kind of fake it till i make it to be you know i will go out there especially when i'm very nervous and this might seem counterintuitive, but if I'm very nervous, I'll probably go over and introduce myself to some people. If I'm, you know, if I feel like the odd one out in a room or for whatever reason I'm feeling low, I'll go out of my way to be sociable because one, I kind of go, you know, if you if you seem confident and you're putting yourself out there, people gravitate and, you know, it's very unlikely they're going to shun you and <laughs> turn away. Or, you know, you'll end up in a conversation and you'll start getting at ease. But it's also, mm-hmm. it makes me remember that if I'm feeling that way, there's probably others in the room feeling that way too. And you just mm-hmm. need to kind of break that ice and go for it. So it's normally that I'll be overly confident until I feel that confidence naturally anyway. Um, and that tends to work. Um, or it's, you know, it can be quite superficial. Be wearing your favourite pair of earrings. I kind of my war earrings. There's a few pair of earrings that I'm kind of probably known for wearing when I go out. And it's because they're quite, loud and obnoxious and you know statement pieces and I think by default if you people assume that if you're bold enough to wear certain things or dress in certain ways you're also you know just as bold and confident in real life and you're probably having a really sucky day and you know don't really feel great but if you if I'm wearing you know certain colorful clothes or my um, big afrocentric earrings then it kind of exudes a confidence that I can then catch up on and feel by the you know by the end of the night too. There's a strategy there to get you through, and then you end up being where you want to be. If that makes sense, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Wow. Well, thanks, Tim. Something I ask all uh, guests is to give me an interesting fact, something that you're really proud of that you've done. Oh, I climbed up Rudaliansha, which is the five adjoining lakes. Um, it's a, I'm going to say a mountain range. They're probably going to tell me the hills, but a mountain range in northern China. Um, and I climbed it with a group of friends. I can't quite remember how many feet tall it is. I think it's 5,000 feet. Um, and it was minus 27 degrees when I did it. And it's something that's so out of my comfort zone. I still kind of think, why did I do that again? But I did it and I have photo evidence of me trying to open a beer at the top of it with my friends. Of course, the beer was frozen, so we didn't get to drink it. But um, that's a random fact about me that most people wouldn't know. Thank you for sharing. Is that minus 27 degrees Celsius? Minus 27 degrees Celsius. Wow. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Thank you. I I then hid in the car for the most of everything else. They went on to visit monasteries and other things. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. I'll wait here. Did the one thing and then hid. It's in what you waited for the beer to defrost and you were drinking the beer. In the warm car, yes. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So the next five things um, I'm going to ask you need to mean something to you. So first one favorite song or piece of music now i know it can be it may not be for you it can Mm. be hard to distill it down to one but for now one song or piece of music yeah you're right and i've been thinking about this question and every time i think of it it's a completely different song so today i'm going to go with kano because spotify says that i played him more than anyone else last year um kano's brown eyes because it reminds me of my youth and it's just a good vibing song in a majority of circumstances so brown eyes by kano thank you so next thing hero or person you most admire oprah and Ah. i share a birthday with her so that's an extra you know we need to meet one day oprah i don't know what's going on but definitely oprah i think she's managed to um, being in control of her own destiny in a way that many aren't. Um, she has advocated for herself, but so, but for hundreds of others. Um, she changes the lives of people around her. And, you know, she's just a powerful force. And she just seems so down to earth in a situation where she could have been, you know, so arrogant and could have deservedly so been, been a diva for all of the, you know, accomplishments she's done of her life, but she still seems so humbled and has her feet on the ground. Brilliant, thank you. Now, I always say this is close to my own heart. Mm. Food. Oh, food. Yeah, I, I love food. My favourite dish would probably be and it's really simple, like Nigerian red stew and rice, like just a very hearty, meaty, peppery, has to be, like nearly blow my tongue off peppery stew. Um, and it just reminds me of home. It's something my dad would have cooked, um, much to my um, distress when I'd been a teenager and come home from school. It would have been red stew and rice and I'd not have appreciated it, whereas now I crave it purely because of the taste or is it because of what it embodies 
both. I think it's definitely, um, you know, memories and, you know, remembering being at home, but it just tastes amazing. But I think, you know, um, men, being African wasn't cool when I was younger. And everyone's going home, you know, I think most of my friends were Caribbean as well. So they're going home to their rice and peas and their chicken and stuff. And I wanted that too. But, I, you know, I didn't get that. And, you know, and so it was a bit of FOMO. I'm like, why are we having this again? Oh, I want, I've always loved it. I, you know, I enjoyed eating it even back then, but I'd probably been a bit of a sulk about the fact that's what we were having. Whereas now I, I understand just how much time goes into it, you know, how much time and preparation. And I, you know, the love that my dad would have you know, started making this meal hours before he came home from school so that we could have it for dinner. You know, there's no way on earth my kids are getting it on a school day because it takes so long. But, you know, my dad would do that. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of an appreciation for the dish now. Place. Good question. Um, London. Everything north of the river. <laughs> Everything south of the, of the river doesn't feel like real London. I don't know why it is, but you can feel that, you know, you, know, you do feel the difference. And Southerners will say that about North London too. So it's not, it's not just me. There is very much uh, north-south divides in maybe the way that you don't have eastern, you know, I'm comfortable east and west, but south just seems strange. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Favourite book, film, video game? Ooh. So, favourite book, I read like probably like 60 books a year, so that's really hard. So, for me, my favourite book would be Cane River, and it's by Lilita Tadami. Um, I think she wrote three books in total. And I say it's my favourite book. I probably read it when I was like 15 years old. And it was one of the first books that dealt with everything from colorism to um, like multi-generational um, kind of like curses, you know, generational curses and the power that your words can have, your words and actions can have on the family. Um, and it touched me enough that when I lost the book, or I don't know, I think it wasn't mine, I borrowed it, to begin with, I spent about 10 years tracking it down and I'm proud to say I now have a copy again. So um, the fact that it meant enough to me to track it down, to put in my bookshelf up till now, um, gives it a special place in my heart. My favourite film? I think I'm showing my age and my answers to these questions. I'm like proper living in a bubble. Um, it would probably be The Pelican Brief. Do you remember that one? Um Obviously not being the same age as you. I, I've kind of heard about it banded around on Wikipedia or something. But, yeah, you know, I'm yeah. far too young to remember. The early 1990s film, Denzel Washington and Julia Roberts. And um, I used to be obsessed with anything written by um, oh, John Grisham. I think it's, it might be a John Grisham one as well. A John Grisham book. So um, just really well written. Two of my favourite actors. Um, and I think it stood the test of time. Excellent. And video game, do you, are you a gamer, Tim? I'm awful. I stopped gaming at probably Sonic the Hedgehog or Crash Bandicoot. So um, I'm going to stick with Sonic the Hedgehog because it's probably the last game I could actually play. All mm. of the old school games, and, you know, you can do Super Mario Brothers and stuff, and I feel really cool. But that's, that is, like, the epitome of my playing. You know, I can make a silly shell car go around the track but I, I can't do much more <laughs> well we all have a calling and, and maybe video gaming is not yours no that's fine 
but that's good. That's fine. We're okay with that. Thanks. <laughs> oh, well, look, thank you. Thanks for um, some really good um, conversation and, and answers and so on. So, Tin, where can people find you? So, you can find me on my own website, um, which is www.tinakbernard.com. And Tinak is not the easiest name to spell. So, it's T I N U K E and Bernard, B E R N A R D.com. And I'm also Tinak Bernard across um, social media. So, that's Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So, you should be able to find me in many places. I'm probably most prolific on Instagram because I'm all about the visuals. That's brilliant. Thank you, Tin. Thanks for your time. And uh, you. look forward to maybe having a conversation again at some point. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the podcast. Until next time, remember, help people feel valued. Listen, don't just hear.